The Darklands podcast covers Pacific Northwest true crime and all that that entails. You are the expert in you. If at any time you feel distressed, please use your judgment and stop listening or skip ahead to another episode. An additional note, this episode involves sexual violence. I will not go into graphic or gratuitous detail. I'll give you a heads up when we get to that portion of the episode so that you can make the best decision for yourself with regards to listening or skipping ahead. This is part one of a two-part episode. Teresa Butts and Jennifer Hopper were deeply in love and looking forward to their upcoming wedding that was to take place in September 2009. The Washington state where they lived did not legally recognize same-sex marriages at the time. The two were determined to have a ceremony that commemorated their commitment to one another, for themselves and in front of their tight circle of friends. They spent a carefree day together on July 18, 2009, filled with fun and the chores one has to do when preparing for a wedding. They went to Weight Watchers in the morning, took a double-decker bus microbrew tour of the South Park Seattle neighborhood where they lived, went for a dress fitting for Jennifer's gown. In the evening, they grilled steaks and watched a movie before climbing into bed, where Jennifer told Teresa how much she loved her before they drifted off to sleep. What happened next, in the early hours of the morning of Saturday, July 19th, is beyond nightmarish. This is the story of 90 minutes of brutality that ends in murder and shattered dreams. It is also the story of the failures of a broken mental health care system, both in Washington State and around the U.S. But most importantly, this is a story of love and resilience in the face of unimaginable tragedy. I'm Miss Abby B, and this is Darklands, Season 1, Episode 5, Part 1, Murder in South Park, Teresa Butts and Jennifer Hopper. Before I begin, I want to acknowledge that the main source for this story is from Eli Sanders' book, While the City Slept, A Love Lost to Violence and a Wake-Up Call for Mental Health Care in America. Sanders is a writer for Seattle's alternative weekly, The Stranger, and his reporting on this case, which he eventually crafted into this book, earned him a Pulitzer Prize. I highly recommend it, and full citations are available in the episode notes. The South Park neighborhood of Seattle is, as the name suggests, in the southern part of the city, just north of the suburb of Tukwila. South Park is located in an industrial area along the Duwamish River. South Park, like all of Seattle and the surrounding area, is situated on the unceded lands of the Duwamish and Suquamish people, and it is from the Duwamish chief, Sihal, that Seattle gets its name. It is important to note that the Duwamish people still inhabit the area and are thriving, despite not being granted federal recognition as a sovereign nation. The Suquamish do enjoy recognition of their sovereignty and also continue their strong presence in their ancestral home. South Park was born to accommodate industry. In the late 1800s, shortly after the city was named for Chief Sihal, the Army Corps of Engineers began the project of straightening the Duwamish River in order to make it more accommodating for heavy industrial commerce on the West Coast. 
Over the years, this industrialization led to widespread pollution, both in the river and on land. The stretch of the river around South Park has been declared a federal Superfund megasite. For decades, South Park was left behind when it came to municipal improvements. It was common for the sewage and drainage pipes to become overwhelmed during heavy Seattle rains and to flood basements. Many roads were crumbling or unpaved. There was insufficient lighting, which caused safety concerns for residents in an area that wasn't regularly patrolled by law enforcement. Perhaps most concerning was that the main connection from the neighborhood to the rest of Seattle, the South Park Bridge, had been labeled one of the least safe spans in Washington, its watchtowers drifting away from each other in the dirty muck of the Duwamish River. As often happens in affluent and gentrifying cities, Property in unimproved or underimproved areas becomes the most affordable, leading to larger populations of working-class families and communities of color that have been pushed out of more desirable areas. South Park was no different, and the result of its affordability and the fact that it was not a high priority for Seattle to seriously address its disrepair meant that the community became one of the most diverse in the city, a patchwork of languages and ethnicities. It also became a place where neighbors bonded and became interreliant despite language barriers. They may tend to one another's yards in exchange for the bounty from another person's garden. Taquerias were prolific in the neighborhood, and residents could access food that was both affordable and filling. It was here, in this vibrant, if rundown community, that Teresa Butts bought a home in 2007. Teresa was making a decent living, working for a corporation that managed high-rise buildings throughout the world, and she had $80,000 in equity from the sale of her condo in a suburb of Seattle. This was at the peak of the housing bubble in Seattle, where the average price of a house was over $543,000. After searching for a house with a yard and being outbid again and again, Teresa finally found a humble little red house for a little over half the average price of a Seattle home. It was a house with a yard, even if that yard was tiny and a hot mess that she had to enlist her father's help to clear. She was happy and proud and ready to begin meeting her neighbors. It was this house that she would eventually share with Jennifer Hopper, a place where they would share their histories and their dreams for the future, where they would plan their wedding, where all of those hopes and dreams would come to an abrupt and horrific end just two years later. When Teresa and Jennifer met, they were both in their 30s. They had grown up with starkly different backgrounds and led full lives, experienced other loves, and were both beginning to settle into new existences for themselves after time spent wandering through the landscape of possible careers and life paths that are part of growing out of one's 20s. Teresa had established herself in her job at the property management company. Jennifer had moved back to Seattle after a stint in New York City where she had been trying to make a go of being a singer in Broadway shows. She had taken a year off to figure out her next steps and had just recently begun working for a temp agency while she contemplated her future. It was while on a temp assignment that she found herself in a downtown high-rise office in a building managed by Teresa's company, which also had an office directly across from where Jennifer was working. It was Teresa that took her to get her ID badge. Jennifer first noticed that Teresa was a powerhouse of energy. At just 5'2", Teresa was a compact package of genuineness and amiability. She asked about Jennifer's work with curiosity 
and Jennifer would see her extend that same interest to everyone she interacted with. They would see each other frequently over the next few weeks that Jennifer worked her temp job. Teresa remembered that Jennifer had spent time living in New York and invited her to a local tavern where a singer-songwriter from Brooklyn would be playing. It was there, in the course of making small talk, that they discovered that one another were lesbians. Shortly after this, the two went out again for drinks, and Teresa let Jennifer know that she was a Republican and had a DUI in her past. It was as if she wanted to get anything that could scare Jennifer away out on the table. Jennifer was not scared away. In fact, she felt like Teresa was being vulnerable because she felt safe with her. And so, the two kissed, marking the date that they would consider their anniversary. The path their relationship would follow was both paradoxically slow and fast, like new relationships can be. They were slow to become physically intimate with one another, but quick to share their histories, thoughts, feelings, struggles, and joys. They began to entwine their lives together, going to church, volunteering in the community, joining the board of an advocacy group for people experiencing homelessness. They stumbled for a moment when Jennifer questioned whether or not Teresa loved her. Teresa, who would throw around the phrase, love ya, mean it, casually, had been slow to express it in a deeper way with Jennifer. After a brief stint apart, they came back together, and shortly after, Teresa asked Jennifer to marry her in as much as they could be, quote-unquote, married, in a state that did not recognize the commitment of two same-gender people in love. They set a date, September 12, 2009, roughly a year out. It was a wedding commitment ceremony that they knew that not all of their loved ones would attend. Despite the very different circumstances in which they grew up, there were also commonalities. Some were quirky, like the fact that they both spent young adulthood working on boats, Teresa cleaning cabins, and Jennifer singing on a paddle boat for tourists. Other similarities were less fun, like the inability of some of their most cherished loved ones to fully embrace them as women who love other women. Teresa grew up in a deeply religious Catholic family. She was the ninth of 11 kids. It was the kind of Catholicism that banned birth control, that led her parents to ban secular music from their house. Music that Teresa and her siblings would hoard in their basement and sneak off to listen to, while Teresa danced and sang off-key. Teresa was a bundle of contradictions. She was a tomboy that enjoyed quote-unquote boys' toys they would get for Christmas, but she also loved putting on dresses for holidays and weddings. She collected precious moments figurines, but could throw down with anyone that picked on her older brother Tim, who was a bit timid. She formed lasting friendships with neighborhood girls, one of whom would say that though Teresa was tough on the outside, she was a big old ball of mush on the inside, caring and tender. Teresa's family was tight-knit, if loud and chaotic, with 11 kids running around. Her father worked long hours to support the family, and Teresa's mother relied on her two sisters and their large broods to look after the 27 children they had between their families. Teresa excelled at sports, baseball, and soccer. If there was any whiff that this tomboy might be a lesbian, the idea was so far outside of the experience of her and her friends and their Catholic school upbringings that it never surfaced. Teresa did get a glimpse of how her very religious family might react to news of a gay child when her brother, Norbert Leo Butts, who would go on to become a Tony-winning Broadway actor and singer, was cast in a significant role in his college production of Normal Heart, where he would kiss a man on stage. His father was not pleased, 
but he did go see the show, expressing both pride in his son's acting ability, but also dismay at the subject matter of the play. Teresa would wrestle with her faith and her growing knowledge of her sexuality. In her late 20s, she would tell one of her close friends that she had gone to church and prayed for God to take away her homosexuality. But that's not how things work. And though she continued to struggle, on a break from her boat job, she visited her brother, Norbert Leo Butts, and told him that she was gay. Norbert was supportive. He told her that he loved her, and that wasn't going to change. She also wrote a heartfelt letter to her mother, coming out, but asked her not to tell her father. Her mother found the letter heartbreaking. She loved Teresa, but this was not what she wanted for her daughter. Teresa would join her brother Norbert in New York, where he was to star in Broadway and off-Broadway plays. She became his nanny and followed him on a countrywide tour of cabaret. During this time, she became depressed and drank more heavily as she continued to grapple with who she was and what she believed. She eventually went on a women's church retreat where she broke down sobbing, committing her life to God in a way that she believed that the church wanted her to. She vowed to make changes and tried to date men. She returned to Seattle and didn't look up any of her gay friends. When they found out later, they told her that they didn't care if she was gay or not. She should have called them. Somewhere, after a hard-fought battle with depression, drinking, a DUI, and a crumbling relationship with a woman she had lived with, she began to find peace with herself and who she truly was. Teresa's homosexuality would remain unspoken between her and her father. Even as he helped her clean up the yard in front of her little red South Park house, she would come to share with Jennifer in a little over a year. It was her father and mother that Teresa thought would not attend her wedding, despite the great love that they felt for her. For Jennifer, it was her beloved grandmother, the woman who filled in as a surrogate nurturer during her turbulent childhood, that struggled to accept her granddaughter as a gay woman. Jennifer's childhood was in sharp contrast to Teresa's. She was the only child of hippie-ish parents. Her father was AWOL from the military, where Teresa's father had proudly served in the Marines. Jennifer's parents never married, though they filled out paperwork as if they were married, using the last name Hopper, which was itself a false name that her father used to evade capture after going AWOL. Jennifer grew up first in Colorado, where her father did wildland firefighting, and they lived off veggies from their garden, used an outhouse, and where her mother made beaded necklaces to sell. When she was around two, her mother left her father, in part because she wanted more for her daughter, but also because he was drinking heavily. They moved to Seattle to be closer with Jennifer's grandparents. The timing was good. Jennifer's mother, Marcia, would suddenly begin to have tremendous back problems with ruptured discs that required multiple surgeries, none of which fixed the problems. Her mother became disabled, walking with a permanent stoop. The two were dependent on the social safety net, and Marcia became addicted to the medication required to deal with her excruciating and unrelenting pain. Jennifer began to spend a lot of time with her grandparents, who nurtured her love of singing. Jennifer watched for years as her mother struggled with pain, poverty, and addiction to methadone. Her mother developed epilepsy from the combination of medication and stress, and eventually she tried to take her own life. Jennifer was the one who found her. Jennifer took shelter in singing, 
and soon people began to notice, even at a young age, that she was uniquely gifted with a phenomenal voice. She participated in high school musicals, where her talent prompted her teachers to rally behind her to get her through school, despite the impact of her tumultuous home life. They helped her move forward, and she eventually was accepted to the Boston Conservatory. The time at the Boston Conservatory was both a dream and a nightmare. Jennifer stood out even among her talented peers as having a magnificent voice. However, the atmosphere of the school was intense to the point of traumatic. The philosophy was to tear students down to the nub and then build them up to be better performers. One student, a friend of Jennifer's, recalled classes where pupils were required to share their most intimate fears and traumas in a group setting. The emotional and academic rigor of the school helped Jennifer develop what one teacher called having an authentic relationship to personal pain, which Jennifer credited with helping her become a better performer. A continual challenge that Jennifer faced in relation to her dream of singing on stage was her size. Jennifer was by no means a large woman, but she was also not the teeny tiny shape that gets lead roles. Instead, she was cast as the matron, the other sister, the friend, never as the lead. The critique of her size was harsh. The program at the conservatory was harsh. She was lonely for her grandmother in Seattle. She went back home and took a summer job singing on the Spirit of Seattle cruise boat that toured around Elliott Bay. She tried to come out to her grandmother, who expressed that she thought Jennifer was being manipulated by other women and wasn't really gay. They agreed to disagree. Jennifer bounced back and forth from Seattle to Boston for another year. During this time, she developed a crush on an employee of the conservatory. During this time, she developed a crush on an employee of the conservatory. The woman handled everything incredibly professionally, letting Jennifer know that she would not engage in an inappropriate relationship. At first, Jennifer didn't know what her crush meant, like was it just about this one specific woman rather than all women? She talked to one of her school friends who told her that most of her friends had seen her attraction to women coming. Jennifer didn't and didn't even stop to think about it. She was getting ready to graduate from conservatory. She had callbacks for a leading role in Les Miserables. Eventually, she would lose the part, being told that she was too big for the lead. She headed back to Seattle to be with her grandmother and continued to pursue roles in community theater, where she was again told that she was hard to place despite her considerable talents because she was just too big. Still, she persevered and then went to New York to pursue her dream. Eventually, she discovered that auditioning and practicing were becoming less enjoyable. She developed a callus on her vocal cords and had to have surgery to get it repaired. During this time, she had met a woman, and the two began a serious relationship, the first for both of them. They moved in together. Jennifer had been performing in cabarets and small venues, but the grueling effort of auditioning nonstop and living on food stamps trying to scrabble together money coupled with Jennifer feeling like her voice had never fully recovered from her surgery, took their toll. She became depressed, and in a fit of despair, she tossed out her sheet music and resigned herself to a future working at a desk. Eventually, her relationship ended, and she returned to Seattle. She took a year off and then began her temp job on the 22nd floor of the city center building, where one Teresa Butts would walk her down the hall to get her photo ID. 
It was now two months before their wedding as Teresa and Jennifer tucked into bed on the night of July 18th. It was a hot summer, and Seattle, like much of the coastal area of the Pacific Northwest, is not a place where air conditioners are common in older homes. In the South Park neighborhood, many houses had opened windows to let the cool river air push out the remnants of the day's heat. Teresa and Jennifer were no exception. At about 3 a.m. on the morning of July 19th, Jennifer was startled awake and completely shocked to find a naked man standing next to her bed holding a foot-long knife. This next portion of the episode will cover the events of that evening, so if you would like to skip ahead for about six minutes, please do so. At first, Jennifer was unsure if she was having a terrible nightmare, but the man immediately pressed the knife to her throat, and she knew it wasn't a dream. Teresa was awakened as well, and at some point, Jennifer believes one of them must have made a noise because their attacker told them to be quiet and that he wasn't going to hurt them. He just wanted sex. Teresa tried to dissuade him and told him that she was on her period. He replied that he didn't care. I will not go into excessive detail about the events that followed, but I do want to give a broad outline of what happened, because it is important to understand that this man tried to weaponize the love that Teresa and Jennifer had for each other in the same way he wielded a foot-long blade. He used each woman's love for the other to keep them silent and compliant until it was clear that all hope was lost and the only way out was to brave death. The attacker methodically sexually assaulted each woman in every conceivable way, taking turns while they laid as still as possible beside each other, trying to maintain contact through their arms slightly touching one another, as if to say, I am here, I am here. The women did everything they could to get through the assault. Teresa was saying the Lord's Prayer aloud, and Jennifer also began to pray that God would let them live. They believed if they could just make it through the horror of the moment, they could get the man to leave and then call someone to come and take care of them. When he was done, he stood against their dresser and stared at them. They offered him their purses and what little money they had. He took neither and reiterated that he did not want to hurt them. Then, chillingly, he told them not to get relaxed. What they had just endured was only round one. There would be, in the words of their attacker, three rounds, each as vicious as the first, and all of which lasted for over 90 minutes. The interminable minutes of the attack would be peppered with surreal moments. In one moment, the women asked for mercy and told their attacker that they were good people. And he replied that they seemed like nice ladies that he wished he could have been friends with. He bizarrely asked them if they thought he seemed like a good person to which Teresa bravely put her fingers to his chest and told him that she believed there was some good in his heart. In another moment, his knife accidentally poked Jennifer, and she said, ouch, and he apologized to her. This was the moment when Jennifer believed that they were going to survive and make it to the other side if they could just live through the immediate atrocities. By round three, any hope that Jennifer had that they were going to be getting out alive had dissipated. The attacker began cutting Teresa while assaulting her and threatening to kill Jennifer if she didn't shut up. He took them into another room and pulled another smaller knife, 
and simply stared at them with dead eyes. And it was in this moment that Jennifer said she knew. She knew he had no intention of letting them live. He dragged them back to the bedroom, and the two began begging for their lives in earnest, telling him anything they could think of that would help him see their humanity, telling him they served on a nonprofit to help the homeless, just trying to say something that would move him. Instead, he threw them face down on their bed and sat with a knee on each of their backs with a knife in each hand, and he began stabbing and slicing. The man slashed Teresa's neck seven times before moving on to Jennifer. It was a frenzied attack, and both women tried to defend themselves. Jennifer would later describe it as a surreal moment where she felt no pain despite watching the blood gush out of her and feeling the repeated stabs. She knew that she was going to die, and in the space of a second had time to think about the heaven that Teresa believed in and to hope that it was real. She said that in that split second, she felt an almost peace in knowing what was going to happen. And just as quickly as that moment came, it passed with a jolt as Teresa mustered all of the strength that remained in her and kicked and shoved their attacker off the bed. The man responded by punching Teresa in the face, breaking two of her teeth, and stabbing her in the heart. But Teresa was not done. She was going to do everything to go out fighting. She picked up a tiny metal bedstand table and fended off her attacker with it until she could smash it through a window and crawl out. And then she ran. She raced. She sprinted into the middle of the street where she suddenly stopped and fell to the ground. For a terrifying second, Jennifer and her attacker were left alone in the bedroom staring at one another before the man fled one way and Jennifer ran the other, trying to open her front door but struggling with her hand sliding off of the doorknob because of all of the blood. She eventually made it out into the street, naked, covered in blood, where she ran to bang on the door of a neighbor. She could see that there were gaping wounds in her arms where the skin was hanging off. She could see the bloody handprints she left on the door. She realized that the neighbor was not home and then ran into the street screaming for help where four young adult neighbors wrapping up a birthday celebration would come to the women's aid. Israel Rodriguez was finishing up a smoke, surveying the yard after his 18th birthday party when he heard Jennifer's screams. He made it halfway down the block towards her when he realized the severity of the situation. He did not see Teresa, but he saw Jennifer naked and covered in blood, so he ran back to his house yelling for his 21-year-old cousin, Sarah Miranda Nino, to call 911. Israel's younger sister, Mariah, who was not yet a teenager, followed her brother, as did another neighbor, Diana Ramirez, who was 14. Another neighbor, new mom Jennifer Dawson Lutz, heard the commotion as she was winding up feeding her new baby. She screamed for her husband to help and to call the police. Israel tried to send his sister and Diana home. He now realized that there were two bloody women with no clothes on in the street, one screaming, the other silent. Deanna refused to leave. Both she and Sarah recognized the women as neighbors they interacted with and said hi to when they crossed paths. Deanna gave Jennifer her sweatshirt and helped her press it against her neck to stop the bleeding before running back into her house to get more towels. 
Sarah cradled Teresa's head in her lap while talking to 911. In between answering the dispatcher's calls, she was begging Teresa to please wake up. Within five minutes of calls flooding 911, police and emergency responders would arrive. For Teresa, it would be too late. But Jennifer didn't know this, and she continued to scream at medics to please take care of Teresa. They told her that they were working on it and also had to tend to her as well. At one point, she was able to say, quote, He told us if we did what he asked us to do that he wouldn't hurt us. He lied. End quote. One paramedic would say that on the ride to the hospital while tending to Jennifer, he saw a look in her eyes that he had never seen before. It was the look of abject terror. As some police began to process the scene at the little red house, a canine unit picked up a scent off the back porch of the house, but eventually lost it near the freeway. A police helicopter couldn't be dispatched because there was none available. Jennifer was rushed to Harborview Medical Center, a regional level one trauma center. It was here, after being treated for hours, that the lead detective on her case, Detective Dana Duffy, would be the first person to not evade Jennifer's questions about her fiance, Teresa. She didn't survive. And after they waited for Jennifer's screams to subside, Detective Duffy would begin the task of interviewing her about the horrific events of that evening. In the weeks that followed, as Jennifer began the long process of painstakingly putting her life back together, she would go for a walk with the pastor of Teresa's church. She began to wrestle with the most basic of questions. Why do things like this happen? She wasn't interested in a treatise on the nature of evil. What she wanted to know, what was important for her to understand, was what could happen to someone in their life to produce the kind of person that could do what he did. How does a person become what he became? And while it is impossible to ever fully answer these types of questions, we can at least gain some insight into the confluence of biological, psychological, and social factors that played a role in creating the 23-year-old man who had the capacity to inflict so much violence and pain, a young man named Isaiah Calabu. This is where we'll end part one of this episode. In part two, we will look at the biopsychosocial issues that contributed to the young man that Isaiah Calabu became. We'll examine the breakdown in the social safety net, including how the court system often becomes the interface between individuals in need of mental health services and those that are mandated to provide them, frequently with negative results. We will also review the events of Isaiah's trial, as well as two other deaths he is suspected of having played a role in. Finally, we will focus on the resilience of Jennifer Hopper and how she has used her voice to keep the memory of Teresa Butts alive while advocating for victims of violence in her community. Until then, be well and stay safe. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dark Lands. Dark Lands is a Frida Pants production. All sources are on our website, which can be found in the show notes. Please send feedback, ideas, and comments to darklandspodcast at gmail.com. Please leave a starred review on whichever platform you use to listen to Darklands.